good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. It is my hope to conclude our time in Romans 6. Uh, over the last few months, we've been walking through this very unique chapter, and you'll notice that there is a very clear refrain throughout it. And the very clear refrain is this death. I mean, over and over again, there's this concept of death to sin, that we have died to self, that we've died in Adam, and all of that is really the overarching theme that brings us to land at the conclusion that Paul makes in Romans 6.23. And you can imagine, brothers and sisters, if you've been walking through this verse, you can even imagine as, pen, as Paul is pinning it and he is considering the weight of everything that he is saying, that there must be some grand crescendo. There must be some great hope on the other side of all of this death. And he has woven it through this entire chapter. And then he concludes it on this grand crescendo of eternal life. Can I ask you a question before we begin our time this morning? When was the last time you stopped and longed for life eternal? When was the last time you stopped and you thought about that last breath that you would breathe here on the earth, knowing that that very last breath would free you from forever from the presence of sin? Or better yet, when was the last time you thought that at that last breath, you knew that your next one would be at the face of the king? Or perhaps it is you look down at your mortal body and you see it frail and feeble. And you think to yourself, can, can anything save me from this? Can this body be redeemed? And you know it's strugglings. You know it's longings. Even still, the taste of death swirl around in our mouths, even though we have been freed from it. And you long and you wait and you groan. Brothers and sisters, we think of eternal life far too little. In our day and time, it seems as though we have been given a great reminder because we have been reminded that at any given moment, certainly life can be taken. Our forefathers, those great saints who we stand on the shoulders of, were always greeted by this reality. They watched often as their children would perish. They watched often as they saw 30 to 40 to 50-year-olds perish and they thought of these things. They preached of these things. If you were to go back and read the Puritan sermons, you would find that they often spoke of heaven. And if you read the sermons today, you would find that it's very rarely spoken of. It must not be so. We must be people who long and look forward to heaven. We must be people who long and look forward to fellowship with Christ forevermore. And in that, we will taste all the, the sweet aromas that we have here and now, the foretaste of glory that we have, even as we gather with the saints. We'll know that the life that he's provided for us, even in this moment, is a life that we will never be removed from. Yes. Should our lives be taken from us, should we breathe our last breath, we could always say, should my life leave, I go on to more life. And so it is this day that Paul would remind us of this great reality by pointing to us, pointing out to us the eternal life that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so if you would, brothers and sisters, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter six, we'll start in verse 20 and make our way through verse 23. Brothers and sisters, I would remind you that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. The word of God says this, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we have spoken often of the end that is death. We have spoken often of our shame. We have been reminded of the fruit that we were getting at that time of these things that we now tremble at, shake at, cannot even begin to hear spoken over us, that former manner of life. But Lord, would you tell us this day, would you remind us this day that that is not where we reside any longer? Would you remind us of the eternal life that you have given us in Christ? Would you allow us to taste it in the here and now, look forward to it in that small period of time that is the intermediate state? And would you give us a great longing for that kingdom, 
that blessed city, that promised land. Lord, that we might rest there forever with our great God and King. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we approach this, I'm going to go ahead and be forthright. We have much to discuss because I'm convinced that we think far too little of the eternal life that he has given. And I don't mean that we don't think about it enough. I mean, we don't think too highly, we don't think highly enough of it. We think about the life that he's provided and we think often, perhaps it is, that you've meditated on the life to come and it's gonna be something similar to what you have here and now. And certainly in that city, we will have our bodies. We will certainly even perhaps work. Scripture's clear, work entered before sin did. That all of these things will be a reality for us. But when we think of eternal life, my hope today is to fill this cup so full that you can't stop thinking about the life that Christ has provided for you both in the here and now, after your death, and then at the inauguration of that great kingdom. So the very first question that we must ask this day is how do we get eternal life? How can we say as individuals, and I want you to hear the confidence in this statement, we can say we are the only people as it were that can say that I have eternal life. You can even go past that and say, I have eternal life. I will have eternal life. And I, when we use that word eternal, we actually mean it as it is. We mean forever. We mean we will forever dwell with the great God and King who rescued and ransomed us. And that leads us to ask, how can we say with great confidence that we have it? Well, let's consider for a moment. I wanna understand what he means by eternal life. And then perhaps we can land at the conclusion because if you notice in the, throughout the book of Romans, this is the fourth time that he's used this phrase. The very first one is used in Romans 2, 7. Just to kind of read that to you for a moment, it says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That there is a righteousness, there is a merit that would ultimately bring about this eternal life. And I think if we were to simply summarize the way that he is speaking of it here, it is that we see it here spoken of as the reward for the righteous. Did you hear the passage from Isaiah that we read? You consider all the things that are charged against Israel in that day, and you think, and I find myself in that camp. Can I say that I am righteous? Because I can say, according to this passage in Romans 6.23, that the eternal life is mine, but I look here and I know that I have not been patient in well-doing, that I have not sought for glory and honor and immortality. And so it seems as though this eternal life is not mine. I have not merited it. And then going forward in Romans 5, 21, it says again, the same use of the word eternal life so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's read that again. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'm still looking at this and I'm seeing that there's righteousness that actually must be had so that I can say with confidence that I have eternal life. And I still look down at myself and I think, well, that righteousness isn't here. But, but remember, brothers and sisters, as you read Romans 5, 21, it is not speaking of being under Adam or being under Moses. It's speaking of being under the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are under him, then we can say that as being under that reign of grace, that eternal life is mine. That going back to Romans chapter two, where it says that those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, it's speaking there of the one who will merit righteousness. That one is Christ and he is glad to give eternal life to all who would be under him. I love Calvin's statement, Christ was enriched that he might enrich us. And so by God's grace, I can see this progression. I can see, no, I don't merit it, but here I'm under this reign of grace. And so eternal life must be mine. If Christ is faithful, if he will do all that he has promised, he has promised that he will give eternal life. And here I stand saying, well, it seems as though I do have eternal life. And then in Romans 6, our immediately preceding verse to our primary text today, but now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Now, it's very important that this simple phrase, we run it through the full context of Romans 6. Because if you take this simple phrase, this last statement that you get in Romans 6.22, it says, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. Well, Paul's been weaving this trajectory through Romans 6 this entire time. And you'll notice it. Let's turn our attention to Romans 6.16. Romans 6.16, it asks if you obey obedience. And if you obey obedience, then that ultimately leads to righteousness. Now we spoke of this. If the obedience mentioned here is not your ability to white knuckle it and be the best little person you can be. 
Instead, it is the obedience of faith that is mentioned in the introduction of Romans. It tells us that you must obey the gospel, that you must believe on Christ, that you must trust him for your righteousness and your righteousness alone. That means any other thing that you might bring to the table, you would call dirty rags and burn it because the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. You obey obedience and then righteousness is laid upon you. Romans 6, 19, a bit further down, you'll notice that righteousness leads to sanctification. Righteousness leads to sanctification. Our position, our standing before God is perfectly righteous. That moment of declaration is forever the case for us. Brothers and sisters, when you were justified, when you were declared righteous before God, do not think for a moment that that verdict will change as you perish. You will be counted righteous. You have been counted righteous. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then brothers and sisters, you can know this with great certainty. When you draw your last breath and you stand before God on the day of judgment, that same declaration will stand. You are righteous. And that righteousness naturally grows us up into the image of Christ. It sanctifies, it conforms, it makes us into that glorious image of our precious God and King. This is the fruit that God gives us. He isn't like Adam. He's like Christ. And he lavishes on us this one blessed fruit. And this one blessed fruit produces all of this. It produces obedience that leads to righteousness. It produces righteousness that leads to sanctification. It produces sanctification that ultimately finds its end in eternal life. And then I must ask the question, brothers and sisters, from where does this fruit flow? Paul, again, has already answered this in Romans 5, 18. It it says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, consider the scene again for a moment. Adam reaches up, he takes the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He takes and eat and then immediately spreads condemnation to all mankind. And then we have this mirror image. So one act of righteousness, our Lord Jesus Christ bears the wrath of God. He fulfills perfect righteousness. And then by his grace, He spreads life to all those who are in him. And not a temporary life, but an eternal life. And it's the reason that we conclude in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A simple way to say this is, here we see the free gift of God is eternal life. The reign of grace brings the fruit of Christ's work to all who are under it free of charge. As Adam ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so spread death to all men, brothers and sisters, so did that tree, that tree that our Lord was crucified to as he perfectly obeyed the will of God, suffering under his wrath and and raising from the dead, spread life to all those who had cast themselves on him. Revelation 22, 17, I think echoes the call of the church as they have taken and they have seen and they have beheld this beautiful fruit that was ultimately produced through Christ's righteous act. And they say this, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. How can we say that we have eternal life? And how can we say it without being self-righteous, wicked men? Because we never look to ourselves in our proclamation that eternal life is ours. We always look to Christ. We see that perfect work of the tree. We see him hung there cursed. We see him perfectly fulfilling all righteousness. And we see him reaching out and offering us fruit that leads to eternal life. He brings about the obedience of faith. He brings about, he gives us, clothes us with the righteousness. He births sanctification in us. And all of that fruit ultimately leads to life and life eternal. So that we can gladly say that I have life and life eternal But know this, it is only in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Matthew Henry, I think, sums it up better than anyone else. Death is the wages of sin. It comes by desert. But life is a gift. It comes by favor. Sinners merit hell, but saints do not merit heaven. There is no proportion between the glory of heaven and our obedience. We must thank God and not ourselves if ever we get to heaven. And this gift is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is Christ that purchased it, prepared it, prepares us for it, preserves us to it. He is the alpha and the omega, all in all in our salvation. Isn't it lovely to consider that the reason that we will stand there on that day is not because of anything that we have done. It is not because of any works that we have 
uh, earned the merit for, because we are quite clear in the scriptures that the wages of sin is death. But we know this, brothers and sisters, that when we stand there on that day, not only has God prepared it for us, but he has prepared us for it. And that leads us to ask a question, what has he prepared for us? You pondered this, you come across it, and perhaps it is that you can recall those moments of thinking through that mansion that was promised to you. Perhaps it is that you think of streets of gold. Perhaps it is that you think of great gates of one single pearl. Magnificent, wouldn't it be? Streets that look like they're paved with gold yet are transparent. And you think of these things, but brothers and sisters, if I could for just a little bit, I want to articulate, I want to labor for a moment what it looks like for you now. Because you have this now. This is yours we say that we have eternal life, that the, that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He is not withholding from us the life that he has promised. He has already given it and then will continue to lavish it on us throughout all eternity. And so what I would like to do just for a moment is to remind us of what we mean when we say that we have eternal life. I would like there to be no misconceptions, hopefully by the time that we leave here, that we have eternal life now, we will have eternal life, and then we look forward to eternal life in eternity. This is the fruit of Christ's labors and works. And so let's examine first, what do we experience? How do we experience eternal life in our current state? And I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, my intention is to assault you with Bible today. So don't, be, don't bother turning, don't try, because I just want you to hear the weight of testimony and the word of God about the life that we have been given. It is so dense, it is so lofty. But I want us to be able to look at all of these things and say, that's mine. That's mine. I can rejoice in that. I can sing. I can worship Christ for the life that he's bestowed on me. I can delight in him and I can see all of these things and say, I'm not going to worship the gift. I'm going to worship the giver. So let's see what it says. So the very first thing that we experience as we enjoy eternal life here and now is we experience the new birth. John 1, 12 through 13 just beautifully sums this up. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you be in Christ, then you know this for, for certain. It is not born of will. It is not born of your will, bare minimum, nor your blood, nor any intention of your own heart. It is born of the will and blood of God. He is the one who grants the new birth. And from this moment forth, we can say this. We are children of God. We are his offspring. That is the reality that's set forth in John 1. And not only is it set forth in John 1, he will carry it throughout the entirety of this blessed gospel to articulate to us our position is that we have life in his name and we have it here and now. John 3, 8 says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And there's this simple phrase that is stuck with me. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Praise be to God, there are people who are born of the spirit. And if you have rested in Christ today, this verse belongs to you. So it is with those who are born of the spirit. Saints, if you be in Christ this day, then you have been born of God. You've been born not of any internal will, but you have been born of that glorious external free will of God to give you life and life more abundantly. And I think Ezekiel gives us a really beautiful picture of this because that new birth is not something just like a, a change in position. I always think, it, think of this in the terms of adoption. We think about adoption and even in our very clear worldly sense, we can adopt someone into our family. We can give them their, our name. We can give them our inheritance, but we can never give them our biological nature. But praise be to God, his adoption is better. He changes everything in us. He alters the person at this new birth. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, cannot more precisely state it. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. He changes the man. He alters the being. When he saves, he saves every part of us. We think of that corruption of sin that runs through every faculty of our being and the spirit of God comes through and ravages it, gives life to all of these things that were once offered to impurity and immorality and gives them life and animates them that they might give 
their selves to obedience. Ezekiel would go on to argue, and I think in this very simple vision of Ezekiel 37, 3 and 10, we have the most beautiful and precise picture of the new birth. And he said to me, son of man, he's looking out over a field of bones, an army of bones, dry bones at that, not a ligament, nothing left on them. He looks and says, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered him, oh Lord God, you know. Then he prophesies over them. And as he prophesies over them, he sees the dry bones begin to raise and begin to connect together that all of a sudden it seems as though there's something miraculous happening. And then they stand there, every part of them renewed, but still there is no breath in them. And then there's this final statement in verse 10. And he says, so I prophesied as the Lord commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. This is the new birth. And the reason that sometimes we don't think the new birth is that miraculous is because somehow we're convinced that you had life before. You didn't have life before. You had some zombified existence, being enslaved to sin. But now by God's grace, he prophesies over the people of God and he gives them life. Every bone and ligament come together and then he breathes breath into them and they live unto God. They live unto God. And there we have, I think, the next step of the life that we have in our current state. Not only do we experience the new birth, the new birth always gives birth to life. You ever considered this? Sometimes we think about the new birth as this momentary action, but birth always leads to life. It's always this concept of now I then must go on living. And I think the simplest way to say this, even in light of Ezekiel 37, is now that I have been born again, I can breathe. I can breathe. I didn't have that ability before. And it's not just a a breath in the sense of certainly filling your lungs, it's breathing in. I love, Sibs makes this argument of a breathing after God, a longing for him. And now because Christ has given life to my mortal bodies, I can do this. Notice what Romans 8, 11 says. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is yours. If you be born again, then you can say with great confidence, this body that was once animated for sin, it is now animated by the spirit of Christ. And now I truly have life. He is animated. He has given life to my mortal bodies. And then we think back to that passage of Romans 5, 2. And oftentimes we think of this very clear statement as a future state. But brothers and sisters, it's not a future state. It's a present state. For those who have been justified, Romans 5, 2 says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We live here. We dwell here, not looking forward to dwelling here. Certainly there's anticipation as we'll see in a moment, but do not think for a second that you do not right now live in the glorious grace of God offered in Christ. You stand here. Your position has been made upright before him. And so we have this life, we can breathe, we can stand. But I think maybe one of the simplest ways to examine the life that we have is in regard to fellowship. Let's believe what Jesus said in John 17, that true life is knowing Christ and knowing the Father who sent him. Well, if that's the case, what is the life that I have now? Well, let's start with the Holy Spirit of God. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have fellowship with the Spirit. Not only do we have fellowship with the Spirit, it is that Spirit that animates our bodies. It is that Spirit that gives life. It is that Spirit that births any holy affection that you have. Not only do we have fellowship with him, the language here is it's sealed. It is the grand impression of God upon the soul. He has marked us to such a degree that we will forever have this brand upon us that says you belong to Christ. You have been animated in your mortal life. You will be raised in the future. You will dwell eternally with him. And by way of guarantee, he deposits the Holy Spirit in us, in us. Saint, from the moment you were converted, you have never been alone. You've never been alone. You've never experienced any moment of of separation. Certainly not from the Father or the Son, but just, just for a moment, if you would consider the reality that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you, that He has made His home with you, 
And if I could maybe just for a moment argue that the beauty of the atoning blood of Christ is that when he cleansed you, he cleansed you to such a degree that it is not unnatural for the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within you. That's how deeply he sprinkles clean the soul, that the Holy One, the Spirit of God can dwell there and not be uncomfortable. So we have a great fellowship with the Spirit. And then we are helped by the Spirit in John 14, 16 through 18. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom, they, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for he, sw- for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I love this simple phrase at the back end of it. I will not leave you as orphans. We are not fatherless. The Spirit of adoption, as it were, has come into our hearts and by it we gladly cry, Abba, Father. We have fellowship with God because the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. We have eternal life, brothers and sisters. But let's not stop with the Spirit. Let's, begin, let's go on to the Son. We have fellowship today with the Son of God. I love 1 John 1, 3, simple phrasing. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And he goes on, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We now, hear me, this is John in his life proclaiming that right now I have fellowship with God. I have fellowship with the Son. I have been reconciled to such a degree that I can go there. I can enter into his presence. Dare I say it, that if a saint who had been washed by the blood of the Lamb would make their way into that holy of holies, they would be the most welcomed saint ever to enter in. When we go there, when we enter into the presence of God, we are welcomed agents. We are sons and daughters. We are brought into that presence with great joy. We have today fellowship with Christ. We can know him. Not only can we know him, we can plead with him. We can go to him. We can rest in him as we will see here in a moment. Because Romans 6, 4 goes on to say, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are united with Jesus in this glorious and miraculous transition, this great exchange. We have been bound to him. And praise God, he was willing to be united with sinners like us. And now that we abide in him, now that we are united with him, we live in him forever. There is no means of separating what has been united by Christ. When he is bound together, when he took the sins of all the saints of God upon himself, he would not release a single saint that he saved. He has kept them and will continue to keep them. Lastly, we have the beauty of abiding in Jesus. John 15, four, this simple command. Have you ever thought of the beauty of this command? Abide in me and I in you. How in the world? Can a wretch like myself abide in Christ? I mean, everything before the Spirit of God gave me life was in opposition. God-hater, I think, is the best way to put it. No neutrality. Deep, deep hatred. And then God set the heart ablaze by the glory of the gospel and birthed obedience in me. And the first act of obedience is to flee to Christ. We abide in him. Then one more, if I may. We rest in him. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You know, we think of rest, and I think perhaps it's really helpful to think about it in the context of Romans 6. This wrestling with sin that we deal with, wrestling before conversion in the sense that we were always giving way to sin, that there was no way for us to be righteous. The text goes on to say that we were free in regard to righteousness. It had nothing. There was no, not an atom of obedience in us. And then Christ gives life. He draws us to himself, and he says, come and rest in me. And you would think that the one who would rescue, the one who would ransom would demand labor. He would demand works. He would demand evidence. He would demand something. But brothers and sisters, that's not what we see. The number one command of Christ is that you come and rest in Him. That you see Him as the sufficient Savior. You throw all your works to the side and you say, Christ is enough. He is enough and I can rest here. I can lay myself before him and know that when I stand before God on the day of judgment, I will be righteous before him. If I do nothing else except believe on Jesus, then I have all salvation given to me. 
Now, most certainly we can say that the life that he gives does animate your bodies for obedience. But hear me, brothers and sisters, you always labor from your rest. You live in the rest that Christ has provided for you. If you go anywhere else, then perhaps it is that you are longing to add something to the sufficiency of Christ and it will not be welcomed. So we have fellowship with the Son. We have fellowship with the Spirit. And lastly, brothers and sisters, we have fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with the Father. Again, 1 John 1, 3. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. But if I could, what I really want to point out to you is the relational aspect of fellowship with the Father. Because as we read through this, we see fellowship with the Spirit as He's marking us. We see the Son of God dwelling with us, uniting Himself with us, that He would then give us life, give us rest, and invite us to abide in Him. But then Galatians 4, 4 through 7, I think is the really important crux of our fellowship with the Father. Our fellowship with the Father, according to Galatians 4, 4 through 7, is rooted in one thing. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What is our relational aspect? How is it that we have fellowship with the Father? We call him Father. You call him Father. I mean, going on, it actually says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We are positionally, brothers and sisters, this is the highest privilege of the gospel. Not only are we declared righteous, we are declared sons and daughters. And as we are declared sons and daughters, it is as if every benefit, every joy, every blessing of sonship is then lavished on us in both occurrences where Paul mentions being a son of God in Romans 8 and in this passage, he immediately progresses forward and says, then you're an heir of God meaning that all that Christ has merited, he is glad to give to you. And Romans 8 goes so far as to say that we are co-heirs with Christ. Perhaps one of the most foolish, absurd verses in all of the scriptures, but praise be to God, it's true. You can say, I have fellowship with God. I have fellowship with God, not as an alien, not as a stranger, not as a slave, but as his son. And so it is with all the saints of God. And then in light of all of that, God in his infinite grace drops us into an earthly family to celebrate all these realities with. I want you to notice Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All of this eternal life here and now, he takes and he places this glorious body of the church. And he says, that eternal life that you have, go live it and live it with the saints that I have rescued and redeemed. He places us in this body. He demands that we have fellowship with one another over and over and over again. He commands us this. And as we rejoice in that glorious commandment, we come, we feast, we rejoice, we delight, we worship the giver of eternal life. And we do so together because he is worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. And if I could sum up eternal life, at least the one that we have here and now, in a simple phrase, we live under the Trinitarian smile of God. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. That is not so apart from Christ. But because of Christ, because of his finished work, because the free gift of God is through him, then we can look at this and we can say, I am no fool to say that God's smile rests over me. I am no fool to say that he delights, that he takes pleasure in his people. And then finally, I think it is important that we understand that not only do we live under the Trinitarian smile of God, we live under the Trinitarian smile of God without end. I want you to notice Jesus' words in John eleven twenty six. This is that statement where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he goes on to say this, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this is the last thing that the Lord says? What a precise and piercing statement. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the eternal life that God has provided for you in Christ actually has provided for you an eternal life that will know no end? that it will not, even when you breathe your last breath, you will not be separated from the life that he's provided for you. We can look at every single thing that God has given us in the eternal life here and now and say, that is mine and that is mine forever. 
I have fellowship with the Spirit. I have fellowship with the Son. I have fellowship with the Father. I'm invited to stand, to breathe, to rest, to abide. All of that is mine and it will never be taken from me because it was never based upon you. It was always based upon the glorious work of Jesus. When he finished it, when he actually did buy eternal life, that he would give you that glorious fruit and say, take and eat, what it birthed in you will last forever. And But then there is this anticipation that we find in Romans 7, 24. Because there is, right? We look at all this and we think, oh, I never wanna leave, but isn't there an inkling in us that says, let's go on? Like, can I move on to the next phase of this eternal life? Paul echoes this in Romans 7, 24. He's considering his own state even after conversion and says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's looking at the flesh. He's looking at the body and he's saying, I wanna be free from the last rim of sin. I don't want the swirling flavors of death in my mouth any longer. I want to go on to deeper life. And that's what we need to understand, that this life, this eternal life that we have here and now only gives birth for the saint more life, deeper life, as it were. There are some that would be so foolish as to argue that when we draw our last breath, we enter into a state of soul sleep, an unconscious state where we are awaiting the resurrection of the body. It is not so. You need no deeper purification for sin after your death because Jesus finished the work. There is no purgatory for the saint of God. When they go, they go to dwell with him. The scripture is abundantly clear. We refer to this period of time from bodily death to bodily resurrection as the intermediate state. And if I could, I want to lay this out for you because I want, my hope is that when you are on your deathbed and you're sitting there and you're pondering, drawing your last breath, you can say this, life, life, eternal life that you can know that as you draw your last breath, you go to the most glorious of rewards. So what does the scripture say about this? The very first thing it says about the intermediate state is when Paul says this in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we say gain? Can you sit there on your bed, whether it be in an instant or whether it be in a long drawn out process of suffering gain? Well, why should we say gain? How can we say gain? Why should we desire it? Because Paul goes on to say, my desire is to depart. Why is it better? Why should we desire that blessed state? Because brothers and sisters, he desires it because my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I want you to know, I mean, just that's Philippians 1.23. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says this, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The preceding verse talks about being at home in the body. And that's looking to our state right now. This is our home. But brothers and sisters, when you depart from this earth, you depart to go be at home with the Lord. And it is a better state. We are free from sin. It will no longer interrupt our fellowship or cause any strife or difficulty or trials or tribulation. There will be no suffering any longer. It will be the presence of Christ and the presence of Christ forever. We can say with great confidence, I am home. I am here with him. I dwell with him. All of the enmity of sin is cast away. I am whole. Yes, most certainly we can say, I'd rather depart and to be with Christ. And hear me for a moment, just as a way of application. There are things that bind you here. I know there are, and some of them are holy. You think of your spouse, you think of your children. And you rejoice and you delight in them. And perhaps it is that you do so rightly and you worship the giver. You praise God that he has bestowed such great gifts upon you. If they bind you here, you have made them idols. If you can't say it's better to depart and to be with Christ, then you have idols made. And you have taken the good and holy gifts that God has given you. And you have said, oh, I'll be bound here by the gift no, brothers and sisters, you bind yourself to the giver and you always know that the giver is better than the gifts. And we should always be able to say with Paul, it is better for me to depart and to be with Christ. We say that in health. We say it in illness. We say it in loneliness. We say it when we are most satisfied in the relationships we have. It is better that I depart and be with Christ. Secondly, because the body of death has been destroyed. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 for while we are at still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
every single human body will be raised on the last day. Every single one. Jesus makes this clear in John 5. Some will be raised unto eternal life. Some will be raised unto eternal destruction. But saint, hear me. When this body goes in the ground and you be raised on that last day, you can know this, that body will never trespass the law of God again. It will be given completely and wholly over to him. When we look at Romans 6, 19, when it talks about offering your bodies completely unto the Lord, that will be a reality. That everything that we do, every breath that we breathe, every uh, movement of our hand, foot, eye, it does not matter, will be given over to wholly honoring the Lord. That's the future state that we look forward to. That body of death, when it is sown, when it is laid in the dust, will never rise again to trespass our God. He will make it whole. And that does lead me to perhaps ask one other question. And I think this is a question I get rather frequently. Well, what does that period of time look like? What does my body look like? How am I supposed to function in this day when I am without my body? What am I doing in between the bodily death and the bodily resurrection. And and normally what people want to know is like, will I have my form? Will I have a body? Well, it seems that you most certainly will. I don't understand exactly how that works, but let me tell you exactly what I do understand. I do understand this because Revelation 7, 9 through 10 is really helpful to me. It says this, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lord, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders addressing me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I may not have that resurrected body, but that cloak, that cloth that I rejoice in day in and day out, we speak of it often as the righteousness of Christ, it goes with me. I may not have this body, but I am not naked. I have been clothed, and I have been clothed with that glorious cloak that I rejoice in today that I will find comfort in tomorrow and that I will have for all eternity because I have been clothed by the righteousness of Christ and his cloak will never be removed from me. I have nothing, as it were, except this cloak and it is enough. Now, the life I was given at conversion abides with me. So everything that we've previously mentioned, fellowship with God, fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship with the Son, all of that is still mine. And here I'm free from sin. I'm not naked. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I will never trespass the law of God again. And yet there still is, brothers and sisters. I want you to hear this phrase. It's really interesting. Revelation 6.10. This is the state. They're resting. They're waiting for the inauguration. They're waiting for the resurrection of the dead. And Revelation 6.10 says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Even in this state, there is still an anticipation. There is still a longing. There is still a waiting. Now, what are we waiting? We are waiting for that moment where the body will be redeemed. We are waiting for John 5 to come to fruition. I want you to hear this. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Every single human soul And those who have done good to the resurrection and life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, they wait this day because yes, they are clothed, but God has promised them a salvation of not just soul. He has promised them salvation of body and soul. He will redeem the whole man. And as they sit there clothed in this glorious cloak of Christ's righteousness, they long for the day when their whole being will worship God again. They look forward to this anticipatory moment where the kingdom is consummated. They look out and they see all is made right. All is made right. And they look around and they say, yes, we will stand here and we will worship forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 21 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And now we are in the concept of the eternal state. When you are changed in the twinkling of an eye, there is no more anticipation. There is no more change. There is no more altering because God has delivered on each and every one of his promises. The body has been raised. The body has been united with the soul. The body still bears that wondrous robe of Christ's righteousness and that body will worship the King forevermore. We have been given a glorious resurrected body. This is our eternal state.
but I haven't even gotten to some of the best parts. Well, what does the Bible say about that eternal state? What is this body? What does it look like? What is it made up of? How is it that it can live forever? 1 Corinthians 15, 42-43. What is sown? And I want you to think when you hear the word sown, laid in the ground, it's a seed. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is where we live. This is what we look forward to. And going on in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 54, it says, for this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. We have immortality. That body will indeed live forever in the presence of our King. And that does lead us to ask, where is this place of rest? Revelation 21, let's think about our city. Revelation 21, 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is our city. We have been marching here, brothers and sisters, since the moment we were converted. God, by the Spirit, has been leading us to this very moment in the application of Jesus' blood to us and the leading us and guiding us throughout the entirety of our life until we draw, until we drew our last breath. As we waited in that intermediate state, God has been leading us to this moment. That this city is mine. And it's mine because I know the king of that place. And the king of that place has invited me in. He has bid me come, and so I gladly come. And I love Revelation 21, 22. This is my favorite feature of this city. And I saw no temple in the city. There's not one. Why would there not be a temple? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. I need no place of worship. I need no temple to go to because literally every ounce of my being has been given over to the eternal worship of the true God, true King. He has truly made the people of God dwell with Him. And we dwell with Him, delighting in Him, rejoicing in Him. We worship Him in every moment of our day, whether we be in the garden or in the home. We know that this city is a place of eternal worship. Now, the beauty of this is not just that it is a place of eternal worship. It is a place that we experience that deep and glorious fellowship with God. I want to give you really three major things here. First is Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God is with man. And I want you to pause for a moment because we've already spoken that we have fellowship with God now. But I always want us to remember this reality. We only go from one degree of glory to another. When we have fellowship with God here and now, it is sweet, it is glorious, it is more than we ever deserved. When we perish, when we draw our last breath, we will stand before God and we will see Him face to face. But in that city, but in this city, I have fellowship with him day in and day out. He dwells with me. Not one person, not two person, but the whole glorious Trinity of God is my resting place. I have fellowship with God. We look forward to this day. We should long for this day. And not only that, Revelation 21, 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. When was the last time you spent a little couple of moments outside, perhaps recently, you've thought about this often, and you feel the heat of the sun. You feel its weight. You see its rays, and you know it's the light of the city. It's the light of our world. You're nurtured by it. You're cared by it. Apart from it, there would be no life here. Brothers and sisters, it is all the more true in that glorious city. Jesus Christ is the light of that place. God is the light of that place. And the glorious rays that he offers us has been cast on every human soul and will be cast on every glorious saint that has been made righteous before God. They will always be in its light. And just to maybe clarify, there is no night there. He is always casting his glory on his people. And lastly, Revelation 22, 3 through 4, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I wish I could accurately and faithfully explain the glory of that. Do you know that we know not worship in perfect purity? There's always some sin. There's always some tainting. There's always some hindrance because this flesh is still corrupt. In that place, it will not be so. 
In that place, we can say this, we will worship him in perfect spirit and truth. Now, I want you to hear the ministry of our God in that place, and then we'll conclude. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's gone. All of the effects of sin, and we know this, brothers and sisters, as long as sin is present, so shall suffering be. But here, there is no sin. And if there is no sin, there is no suffering. There is nothing to bring a tear to the eye. There is nothing that would cause strife or pain or sufferings at all. Instead, all of these things have been passed away. Why? Because he's, He has been making all things new. That the creatures that dwell in that place are new creatures. That the, the fellowship with God, although established in Christ and brought and applied to us in our lives today, even in that period of intermediate state where we're dwelling with Him, awaiting the body, but in this place, in this day, there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more burdens of sin. It is all cast away. And then lastly, and I think this is one of the great ministries of our God that we often overlook, Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Never. He's the defender of that city. It goes on to say, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. He guards that city for us. First Peter says that he, he is guarding it by faith. He is protecting this glorious inheritance, this imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance for us, and nothing, nothing will corrupt it. There will be no Adam in that city that could corrupt and ruin that garden place. Why? Because that garden, this place, this city is built on the immutable ground of Christ and nothing, nothing will corrupt his finished work. And so here we kind of land. Here we see all of this. We have the glories of being brought into eternal life by Jesus Christ. We have that eternal life now. We look forward to that intermediate state where the body will no longer corrupt that relationship. But even more so than that, we anticipate the day when God will, will unite soul and body and bring us into that glorious city that will know corruption, that will know no corruption, nor fault, nor failing. It is a city that will not be shaken. And now we can say, or ask, will there be any more anticipation? Will there be any more anticipation? We've lived in anticipation. But how could there be any more anticipation? All the promises of God have come. Every promise made has been brought to fruition. He promised you life and life you have. He promised you fellowship forever and fellowship forever is yours. He promised you freedom from sin and sin has been conquered and banished. He promised you light and you stand in that endless day. He promised you joy and he has ushered you into his throne room and pointed you to his right hand and said, there are pleasures forevermore. And all the promises of God have been consummated in this wondrous land. And so we must say with John, Amen. Even so, come. Let's pray together.